0: Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All continent episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only, and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Vijay Patel, who is the founder of PressBox and the 81 Collection. PressBox was a 24-7 dry cleaning and laundry services business, which VGen bootstrapped to a very successful exit to P&G and now is Tide Cleaners. The 81 Collection is a VC fund that focuses on the hard industries. This was a fun conversation to see how VGen started and scaled PressBox as well as where he sees the opportunities where others aren't at the 81 Collection. Without further ado, here's VGen. Vision. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: I'm great. How are you, Mike?
0: Doing great, thanks. Doing great. So so excited to talk about the world of entrepreneurship and also your new venture capital fund, which is really exciting. And dry cleaning, all of it. Exactly. So were you always fascinated by dry cleaning? I mean, what was kind of what was kind of the insight that like led to uh, PressBox?
1: So no. I remember calling my mom when I originally started this idea and she cried. She's like, you're starting a dry cleaner? What? And so the story actually reverses a lot. So the first business I ever had was like, I was 14 years old. It was selling Cubs tickets. And so I always had this entrepreneurial urge. But after college, I was at McKinsey for a while in the consulting firm and then did private equity. And so I kind of had to subdued, I subdued my entrepreneurial urges like pretty deeply. But then finally I was like, I got to do it. And the private equity firm I was working at, we were known infamously for taking Tempur-Pedic from the infomercial into a retail format. And so we had specialized in retail and in 2013, think a decade ago, if a vertical within retail had no tech, no branding, and a lot of fragmentation, those three signs, it often signaled disruption. So like taxis, right? Heavily commoditized, everything's yellow, no real branding, no technology. I saw the exact same profile set in dry cleaning. So. No, little to no passion on dry cleaning, but just saw an incredible opportunity for innovation in it.
0: So it was, and obviously it was like the, the technology side on dry cleaning, nothing really had changed in terms of how you actually obviously went to the dry cleaners. You didn't ever have, you know, these types of lockers. There wasn't kind of a, any type of technology actually would like signal when your actual dry cleaners are done.
1: I mean, it's just like right, a great place, to like start a business often is like what sucks in the world. And it sucked that like, I know I was in like finance at the time and like the dry clean hours from nine to five. And like, I never was available to do that. Like I'd have to go home early or like go to lunch or whatever and do that. And so that was like the original focus is like dry cleaning sucks. The entire experience sucks right now. But then as I dug in, right, like I thought about those three traits earlier on like parts of retail, the, the lack of technology, branding, and a lot of fragmentation. And I thought about taxis and, the way Uber and Lyft all worked is because they recreated the supply and distribution method, right? They, they replaced medallions effectively. And so then when I dug deeper into it, I was realizing the real innovation in dry cleaning is actually, it's got to be in the distribution method or supply. And so what did
0: you do first when you were thinking about disrupting on the distribution side?
1: Two things. I talked to a lot of friends and just said, hey, like, what do you think about this idea? And like, by a lot, I mean, like a hundred. Like, I I went to everyone, and it was great because half the crowd was like, this is a stupid idea, and this is why A, B, and C. And oftentimes they were right, and I would sit on it, and then I'd reflect and be like, you know what, they're right, but what if I added this? Or what if I did this instead? And it just built and built. The other thing I did was I, I literally – Put up like a little simple Excel model with like twenty rows, and I just built like what would it look like, right? Because the entire idea was to recreate a dry cleaner with hardware and software, and so I just said like what would it look like on a unit economics basis? Like how much revenue would I get? How much would it cost? And like it was all hypothetical, but slowly by doing, it, I was like, oh, this could actually make money. And so the combination of like a lot of subjective kind of insights plus some sort of like a simple mathematical model really helped.
0: What were like the first lockers that you? Created or like, how did you actually build? You know the lockers and also like the software component as well.
1: It was kind of wild. We actually even before we did that, what we would do is like sit at locations with like a table and just talk to people and say like, "Hey, would you use this if like we put a locker there?" Ultimately, we sourced lockers. They're out in Indiana, an incredible partner. We paid like two thousand or like three thousand dollars up front and we just put them in locations to see which ones would work. And what was really exciting, like the and insight, Mike, was that we thought we'd put all of our lockers in offices. We were like, oh, this is where dry, like this is where the suits are. This is where like the lawyers are, the bankers, all that stuff. And we were 100% wrong. We slowly found out, we tried a location in like a multifamily, so like a high rise apartment and it crushed it. And we were like, oh my God, we've got this all wrong. And so we pivoted really quickly. So in short, we were really experimental upfront. We put a little bit of money in hardware. We used SMS to get started, so text, and we just built from there.
0: That's, th- that's amazing. That's amazing. How also did you think about the specific I know you were talking to people and saying, hey, if you had a locker that you could then put your dry cleaning, you know, in the locker, and then we kind of give you updates of when that dry cleaning is done, and we, you know, deliver it back into the locker. But how did you also like pick the locations that were kind of prime for, you know, press box to work?
1: So, again, what we did is we knew originally, we're like, there's different, we call the paths of least resistance, so like, where is it that people are? Let's go to them instead of them having to come to us. And so that kind of illuminated like seven or eight different channels. So where they go to work, where they live, where they go to work out, like where are the commuter like modes, like train stations. And so all of a sudden, like seven or eight different modes, we're all eligible candidates. And so we just tried throwing stuff out there. Like we put it into the biggest union station in Chicago. We did a couple of gyms and we just saw the data told us what was gonna work.
0: Got it, got it. How also did you approach the actual supply chain and imagine partnering with, you know, dry cleaners? How did that whole process work? And also how did the delivery, the transportation going from locker to dry cleaner
1: work? Yeah, great question. So this is actually the core of the business because, you know, all the encouragement from all the VCs is like go asset light, go employee light, et cetera. And so we started that. But what happened is that quality suffered, right? So as you scale in something like a service, you know, it's easy to press one shirt well and get it back to a customer. It's a lot harder to do that with 10,000 shirts, especially if you don't own that plant. So originally started by partnering with like, you know, local dry cleaners or plants that were there. What ended up happening is, and this is kind of like more like year three or four, we ended up building the second biggest dry clean facility in all of Illinois. And so we ended up vertically integrating. And this was the crux of why we were able to become effectively the nation's largest dry cleaner. It was because if you go to like like a dry cleaner, they have two big cost items, labor and rent. We were able to bypass both of those. We'd place our lockers oftentimes without having to pay rent on site. And then we wouldn't have any labor on site. So what we would do is go around the city, pick up all of these clothes, bring them back to the central facility and then bring them back two days later. And that's actually no different than a storefront because oftentimes they're not doing work on site. And we would effectively have the same operational process, but without having the cost burden that a normal dry cleaner would have.
0: Now you say that, of course, you know, when, you, when you talk to VCs, obviously you know, they love you know, asset light uh, businesses and everything. When you were raising capital and fundraising, was it difficult to kind of paint a picture about why it actually made sense to be vertically integrated?
1: So we didn't start off like that. So originally, but to your point, we had hardware and that freaked everyone out. Like, you know, now it's not like a swear word, but like 2013, like, you know, we used our word hardware and they're like, oh, we're done. Like, can't talk to you anymore. And so we were passed by every VC in Chicago, which is fine. They're all like good friends now. But after a while, because of that mathematical model I had, I was like, this is going to work. And so what ended up eventually happening is I put all my money into it. I had, and I was lucky to have it. I had 120 grand saved up, put it all into it. But if I didn't have that, I would have probably gone to the coast and found one of these hardware firms and gotten their backing. But the original intention was not to vertically integrate. It was just to use this hardware to recreate a storefront. And that in itself was enough apprehension.
0: How then did you also approach city expansion? And as well as, you know, how did you also think about... Because as, you know, they're almost like distribution centers, right? When your actual dry cleaners, like how did you also think about like location between the locker and the dry cleaner and kind of how they feed into one another?
1: We had a lot of competition. Like, I don't know if you remember the, remember Washio? Was that in LA, right? With where you were? You remember Washio? Oh yeah. Washio raised a ton of money. Our good friends are uh, Ajay at Rinse. Awesome people. And so we all went after this space. So there was a lot of competition. Ultimately, I think why we ended up winning is because of our density. So in one hour, our drivers could do 26 transactions per hour. Think about that, 26. So we could go to one building, drop off three orders, pick up five. We could go down the block and do that again. And so all of a sudden, our efficiency on like per mile per driver, exactly, just like was way lucrative. Like our, we made money and we, we did efficiently. That was very different than going to pick one order up on like the northwest side of like Chicago and then go to the south side and then go up to like Lincoln Park. And so our numbers worked because we had a lot of density. And so as we thought about national expansion, two things we looked for. So one, we wanted to make sure we were first profitable in Chicago. So we were cash flow positive in Chicago after about a year and a half in Chicago. So pretty quickly, and not like EBITDA, like cash flow, like we spit out cash flow. Once we did that, we're like, all right, this is working. Now let's look to other cities. And we looked for two things in new cities. We loved new developments and we loved density. And so we would literally scrape through all the city data. And what ended up happening is that we went to DC and we went to Nashville, which is like, who would have ever guessed those two cities? But those were our second and third cities for those factors.
0: Got it. So based off of density and, and and imagine too, you can, it doesn't in some way, they obviously have to be close to the lockers, but you actually then have more flexibility of where these dry cleaners are actually going to be located right around the cities.
1: Yeah. So for our locations, exactly. So we would have effectively like geographic boundaries, but then we would always have only one central facility, right? So if you go to your normal dry cleaner, which God knows when the last time we've been to one, they're most often not doing work on site. So that you go on site, they collect the clothes, but you probably won't see any machinery in the back. They'll actually take it to a central facility. And so we would do the same thing. We would just put the lockers in in case instead of the storefront at a place of greater convenience. So in each of our cities, we would have one place where they would produce all the supply. How did you also
0: approach price too? And kind of the, the premium that customers
1: would be paying it's funny. A normal dry cleaner operates at 15% gross margins. We were able to operate at 55 Because we didn't have rent, we didn't have labor on site, Like we had good unit economics. I was actually talking about this yesterday with um, one of our portfolio companies, but we actually anchored to market prices. So we would do like $199 a shirt, which was like the, the norm in Chicago. But this is where it got interesting. Once we were entrenched in people's lives, it was very easy to do price increases. And oftentimes our price increases were because of cost increases. So You know, we wanted to offer all of our employees health insurance from our plant workers to our vehicle drivers, like everything. And so we would explain this to customers and increase the price by like, I don't know, like 7%. And no one would ever complain except for about 20 people. Okay. And these 20 people, I'll never forget this, had never used us. And so it was fascinating because you get all these complaints with price increases, but then we look at their order history and it's like, you've never used us. And so it's like, you were never going to use us at the lower price anyway. So it's fine. That's awesome. I mean, that's the best problem to have.
0: Who did you kind of target as your ideal customer? And how did that ideal customer kind of change as you maybe put lockers in different locations?
1: Yeah. So eventually, right? Like, you know, an office clientele was different than a multifamily clientele. But as the numbers came back that apartment buildings and condos were really where we were going to hit like a home run, we really realized that our core customer was like a 25 to 40 year old, often making more than like a hundred K and they loved our service because of convenience, right? Like at 8 PM, at 6 AM, like if you're a physician, whatever it is, you can go back down to your lobby, find this thing, throw your clothes in there, use our app and you're done and dusted and like move on with your life. And so we would have, we eventually had the tagline life, not laundry. So like, don't build laundry around, like don't build your life around laundry. We'll take care of it. Our core demographic were 25 to 45 year olds, often pretty wealthy, which eventually became one of our most attractive aspects as we went to sell.
0: That's really interesting. Why did you elect to sell eventually? And how did that kind of happen with, with PMG?
1: So remember when I talked to you about how we talked to everyone up front, and like, like a lot of people, 100 people, and we're like, hey, what's wrong with this idea? And we kept that list, by the way, like since the last day. We we're always like, all right, these are the highlights of the business and these are the issues of it. And one of the biggest issues was, who do you sell a large dry cleaner to? And like, we can't sell to another dry cleaner. And, you know, at this point, we had 1,200 locations. We we're in 10 cities. We, like, we were big. And so we always had our eye on strategics, always did, because like, eventually, who else can pay for those? It was either private equity or strategics. Were you always thinking about an exit for the business when you started it? I, yeah, like I'm not passionate about dry cleaning. <laughs> and like, I mean, I'd love to tell you something otherwise, but that wasn't the case. And like, I'm very passionate about our journey, but I feel like dry cleaning was the currency in which we operated. And so, yeah, I, we wanted to build something. We wanted to create change, but ultimately it's really hard. It's really hard to bootstrap the largest dry cleaner. You know, in terms of locations, that's like a a lot. And so I worked, you know, seven days a week, seven years of my life. And so at some point I was like, what are we doing with this thing? For four years, my salary was $40,000. And so there's like a lot of moments on a Saturday when like you've got a driver who calls sick and you've got to go like run a route quickly. And all your friends are playing college football or like watching college football. You're like, crap, like, is this worth it? And so we always wanted to make sure we like knew this would be like an ultimately we'd find a home for this business. Got it. And I appreciate that,
0: you know, because you started this business, you saw an opportunity, but at the same time, it wasn't something that you could see yourself maybe doing in like 20 years.
1: I mean, it's boring. It's unsexy. It's like, it's not like, I I mean, it's like I didn't wake up and like as a kid want to become a dry cleaner and and I'm not saying that in a bad way, but like, I'm just being honest. And, and it's not like, it's okay. Like entrepreneurship, in my opinion, a lot of it sucks. Like it sucks until it doesn't. Um, but especially for us, like we saw an opportunity. So how did it happen? Was
0: it after seven years of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears? You thinking, all right, now I want more flexibility. I want to do something else and a change of scenery. Or was it more so about kind of strategic kind of coming to you and and you kind of couldn't just pass up on all this opportunity?
1: Yeah, it was a mix of both. So at some point, this is crazy. Our homepage for like my computer was our bank account because every other Wednesday payroll would hit and we would get these million dollar swings in our bank account and like i'd be like is it going to clear or not because we again we bootstrapped it right and so payroll hit and we'd have like we'd go from like $600,000 down to like negative 300 i'm like crap is this like still going to work and like are we going to be able to pay our employees and so ultimately like this is the anxiety we kind of slept with every night and so we knew we were on to something we had a great business a lot of it was cash flow positive But we needed more capital and so at this point we did get a lot of vc interest we had a couple term sheets but we also knew we had known we had gotten some interest to the png folks again we were kind of like proactive with this because we knew from day one that you needed some sort of an exit and so we kind of found our way through networking to like some of these people at png who kind of saw our deck and so we had actually talked to them a year before we sold to, just be, to introduce ourselves and be like, hey, like as you guys are looking at services, like what are you guys looking for? And it was really interesting, Mike, because they actually ended up having some entrepreneurship where they had some like startups within their company that they were trying to do things with. And one of was in the dry cleaning space, and so we would go head to head with them sometimes, and we'd beat them every time. And so we just continued to build like and get their attention. Why were you beating them every time? This is the beauty of entrepreneurship. It's like I was I wasn't gonna let it lose. It's like it was our company, and so we went hard. You know, we'd be persistent. We'd do follow ups. We'd do whatever we needed to to win that contract. And you know, if you're a well-salaried employee at like a large Fortune 500 company, are you gonna have that same drive? And ultimately, we had a head start, and we I could lean on you know a thousand other relationships and be like, hey, call this person, call that person, and and this is why I like ultimately really love Chicago. But every time they'd call it, like the people that were our first believers in which we said we'd do something and we did it, they always had our back. How did the conversations kind of engage
0: to, hey, we know you guys, but hey, now we actually might be thinking about acquiring you guys.
1: So this got wild. Remember, we had some term sheets, right? And so like, hey guys, like we're going to go take financing out. We're competing with your little, like your startup in PNG. We're going to go take this capital and continue to compete with you guys.
0: And, and and also like how much on the term sheet wise, how much were you actually looking to raise when you were thinking about one of these, you know, avenues? How much were you kind of ballpark were like thinking about raising?
1: We were, I mean, this was 2018. We had a couple term sheets at like four to five million dollars. Cause again, we were cash flow positive, so we didn't need as much capital. Yeah. And I think we we could have raised more, we didn't need to. We even we took on debt, like we had some other financing things because like we had hard assets. We had cash flow; like it was a good business. And two crazy things happened. One, PNG did two things. So one is that they have a philosophy of build or buy. All these strategics do, right? Because if you think about what they're sitting on, they're sitting on billion dollars of cash, right? And so they're like, "Look, we could go buy this for X, or we could just build it ourselves." And like, if it's cheaper, let's just build it. And so what ended up happening is they offered uh, their comp- their little startup offered our locations uh ten thousand dollars to switch
0: wow
1: so like say we had a locker or like a, a location they would go to the owners and be like hey like i saw you chose like tide cleaner or t- you chose a press box which is your visual name you know if we give you 10 grand per location we switch and they did this just in chicago and imagine if so we had 250 partners in chicago how many of those 250 do you think said yes? Offering 10 grand to all of them. Each location. So you have 250 locations, 250 partners. 250 partners, like 400 locations. Yeah. And you're not
0: paying rent, right? At all. I want to say a lot of them, but at the same time, if, it's, if they're keeping their tenants, if, if the system's already keeping their tenants happy with having, you know, press box on the site, then maybe actually not so many.
1: Interesting. Yeah. That's a good reflection. One. One out of 250 cities. One, And this wow. is amazing. It was two things. One, you're right. We were ingrained and it was almost more of a headache than not to switch it. But then the other thing that was really interesting is this is where like people had a relationship with us individually, our team. And they're like, oh, no, like these people are awesome. Like they said they do this. They, they'd say they you know have two day turnaround. They'd say they have great quality. And they did that. And so like, we've got their back. Like we don't need the extra money. Like this team's awesome. We've got their back. And, and so that, when they saw that they're like, all right, these guys are worth it, right? Cause for them it was build or buy. And they're like, all right, we can't build it. We can't just buy it, like buy their locations. The second thing that happened is they lowballed us twice. And so at this point we were like, Hey, like we're gonna do it. And this was the wildest moment of my career. I like, I look back and I was like, should we have done this? And I'll never forget this because my wife was so mad at me, but we'd gotten a lower term sheet and my co-founder was just like pissed off. And he's like, screw this. We're going to send them a redacted term sheet, none of the names on there, but like just the numbers and be like, hey, we're signing this term sheet. We'll like look forward to like continuing the conversation like down the road. And it was like millions of dollars, and so my like, my co founder called me. Is like, hey, like let's just send this email. I was like, yeah, 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 that makes sense. And my wife's next to me, and she's like, you just did what? Like we literally could have gotten millions of dollars, and you're trying to play hardball. And remember, right? Like I had, I had years of us like having a salary of forty grand. So like this was a lot. I mean for anyone, but especially like with what we had been through. And to my co founder's credit, they said give us twenty four hours, and they came back with a badass offer.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. That's great. That's so wild. That's so wild. And that's also super cool that all of your partners didn't jump ship. Because it could have been a very different story if they had, right? A hundred percent.
1: I'll like never forget that one partner that did jump ship. I'm like, man, I hate them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because at the same time, like I also kind of seen it from like their standpoint on the on the landlord standpoint where it's like, Hey, this is a perk. This is a great perk for, you know, tenants of that and 10 K like that's a lot of money in some ways, but at the same time, not life-changing money. It's not going to be, it's not really going to put us, you know, over the edge in some ways. And so if this is a, you know, a perk that's really, you know, adding to the better well being for, you know, people that actually live in in these complexes then, or or work in these complexes, then like, why would I change that? A hundred percent.
1: And you know, what's amazing about that is like, to your point, You know, technology and all this amazing stuff out there. But at the end of the day, like humans are humans and it comes down to relationships. And these people loved us. And we had spent five, six, seven years building these relationships with people. And ultimately, it wasn't an amount of money that wanted to forego that relationship.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. And that's a really great point. So you sell the PNG. We talk a lot about this show about when you sell to a company there's also you also have to imagine yourself to work at that company and, and see how the culture would actually fit in things kind of mesh and and, and come together what was it like for you working under png and still and what became tide cleaners
1: so i actually i had a great experience they're in cincinnati they're nearby to us in chicago so we had a lot of overlapping values, which is amazing just like putting hard work in and and great people also say, you know, the person that sponsored our deal, uh, like the number two and number three now at P&G, who we've gotten to know, cl- like quite well, I even call them friends now, still to this day are the smartest people I've ever met in my life. They're smarter than anyone I've ever met McKinsey in private equity. But like, I mean, these people were just geniuses. And I loved learning from them. There were two interesting insights that we picked up on that were humbling. One is I, from the outside, had just, like, dramatized P&G because, you know, they're an amazing company where the, the mop, for instance, worked for thousands of years, and then all of a sudden they created the Swiffer, and it's like, oh, this is a better version of the mop, and, like, you don't need the mop anymore. And I, like, in my head, I made these fantasies up that, like, they are just marketing geniuses. I realized, actually, they're manufacturing geniuses. And what I mean by that is that like, yes, they've got incredible Super Bowl ads. They've got all that stuff. But really what drives that company is, you know, with every bottle of Tide, you know, with every Swiffer you get, you know exactly what you're going to get. And so a Tide Pod, like that factory, they have 99.9999% efficiency of like consistent quality of Tide Pods. And that infrastructure and manufacturing capabilities is like the backbone on which you can like build a brand. And so it was just eye-opening to me how great they were at manufacturing.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point because I think that we talk about, you know, P&G and like, oh, it's, you know, great branding. Or, you know, you look at, you know, other, you know, conglomerates and and big companies, but like-
1: That's Super Bowl ads, right? You're just like, oh, this is cool. Oh yeah, incredible, incredible,
0: absolutely. But at the same time, it's like, okay, how do you actually build those products from scratch? And it's not just saying, hey, you don't need the mop anymore. That's actually innovation. It is actually changing. You know, you actually have to build that product. So once you leave p and I know you've just launched a new fund, 81 Collective. How did that come together And how has this whole entire experience, you know, starting a capital intensive business and obviously scaling that, how has it all impacted you? How you actually think about new opportunities going forward?
1: So I ended up stepping down from Tide Cleaners in in 2020 and I took two years off. And if anyone, you know, who listens to this gets the fortune of, you know, having a payday and having the ability to take time off, I highly recommend it. Because what ended up happening is by effectively doing nothing, kind of rebalancing my life, I noticed where my spikes of energy came. And it was three things that I realized just like filled me up. One is I love entrepreneurship. Two is I missed investing. I just used like, I missed using my brain. And you know I think some of the greatest entrepreneurs I know are just razor focused on one thing for like decades. And I missed like, you know, the balance of thinking as well as doing. But third is I noticed I was most proud of all the jobs I created. You know, we had created eventually 250 jobs, and it was a lot of people that were making 15 or 20 or $25 an hour, and they were going to make that for the rest of their careers. And now many of them make 100 a year. And, you know, I've been to my employees' weddings. I've seen them buy houses. I've, I've just seen them even start their own businesses. And I realized, yes, our business was capital intensive. It was not employee light. We had moved families from lower class into middle class. And I was writing all these checks into funds. I'm like an LP in 17 VC funds. And I was realizing like everyone's trying to find the next asset light, employee light, cloud-based unicorn. And that's awesome. That like is a great way to make money. I think it's awesome. It's amazing what it's done. But we're also leaving behind all like that only allows us to innovate in a few industries. And so we're leaving behind all these neglected industries, all these neglected communities. And I just realized there's like a giant black hole in this VC world.
0: That's really interesting. And when you say neglected industries, what specifically are you kind of referring to as you think that are are still kind of neglected? And how also does this translate to thinking about returns and how you think about maybe portfolio construction that might not be, you know, like that, that traditional power law type construction that you kind of hear about?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. There's like three questions in there that are really interesting. So the first I'd say is valuation of any company always comes down to three variables. Growth, return on capital and risk, like in some form or the other it always comes down to those things. Right now, a lot of VCs by and large don't want to touch low growth industries and they don't want to touch like low ROIC industries. Those are the industries I'm willing to take a bet on. And so the way I think of it is effectively three industries that like align with those frameworks. Low R, so for the return on capital is like low margin industries like dry cleaning, anything in retail. The other one is capital intensive industries, So this is manufacturing, construction, logistics, supply chain. And then the third is low growth industries, which is oftentimes like real estate, like real estate's like 30 or 40 years behind things. Like, you know, when's the last time we innovated a paintbrush or a brick building or even the home? And so those are the three areas that together, I kid you not, comprise 55% of America's economy and almost no VCs touch it.
0: So, how then, since these are, as you you know, since these are low margin, low growth, capital intensive industries, which I'd imagine VCs that are listening are like, Ooh, why would I ever want to touch those? And I totally understand why VCs wouldn't touch those businesses. But how then do you think about when you're investing in these types of businesses, what does that growth trajectory look like? I mean, what does, because I think that, When you think about VC, you think about kind of outsider theory. And, you know, you have, if you invest in 10 companies, you maybe have two. The hope is that you have, you know, two that return um, the portfolio and some, right? But how do you think about what the return profile kind of looks like for these types of businesses?
1: Yeah. So these industries, I think, get painted with like a negative sentiment, right? Because of what you talked about, low growth, low ROIC. Our take is kind of like how software ate the world. We think high ROIC startups will eat these low ROIC industries. So for instance, right? I told you like we operate at 55% gross margins. Soon the business will actually operate at 80% margins or have the potential to because the higher back end will be automated. And so all of a sudden you'll have, you know, this plant that's, that's operating at 80% gross margins. You'll have 24 seven consistently high quality and that kind of sounds like software. And so our take, right, is like these industries are actually going to get disrupted. And then this leads to your second question, which is effectively, these are giant parts of the economy that you think about where we are in the Midwest, where a lot of it's focused here in the Midwest and a lot of Fortune 500, like, you know, they built their businesses here. And I often think like how much, what percentage of the Fortune 500 right now or S&P 500 if they started again today, would be able to get a VC check. Yeah. It's like a very, right? Like, oh, you're trying to build equipment for farms? What? You're trying to do, like, you're trying to build an airline? You're trying to, like, whatever it is. Like, it's like, oh, you're trying to build motorcycles? Like, this is stupid. This is so capital intensive. Like, you're never going to make
0: You're trying to make burgers and create, like, a franchise model out of it?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, stupid. And so, to your point... We're excited because we think we'll have multiple exit opportunities for our portfolio if they generate cash flow. And so this is like our preaching. And there's a couple of funds out there. One that I really admire is called Founder Collective out in New York, but they effectively figured it out as well. It's a bunch of founders, but pretty much raise your pre-seed, raise your seed. But then the name of the game is raise as little capital as you need to achieve the goals you want to achieve. And, you know, I didn't have a unicorn exit, but I had a great exit. That you know takes care of my family, my employees, whatever, and that was great. And P and G only bought us because we we're a cash flow positive. And you know, as we're going into this like new economic environment, obviously everyone's talking about cash flow, but like that's where it is. And you get a lot of great cash flow in these boring, unsexy industries because they've got inelastic demand, and so that's why we get excited.
0: So we've seen like in like you know maybe. Traditional technology companies, like for example, like Amazon took a long time, right, to be like cash flow positive, wow. right? Uber, I think, is just becoming; they're just now turning a corner on profit, and so it's been a long time. When do you see for the businesses that you invest in? When does that kind of because, of course, these are capital intensive businesses, so you know there's probably going to be a period where you aren't cash flow positive. So, how yeah. do you think about the overall trajectory of the actual business, and where do you think about where they actually should be cash flow positive and that kind of turning point?
1: I think there's three levels. I think unit level profitability, I think there's city level profitability, and then there's company level profitability. And like the beauty is in the details. And so ultimately, you know, with these like unit economics, you know, a lot of these should be there. They should profit on a city level. It's okay if it's not profitable at, a, at like a whole company wide level, but you've got to make sure a lot of those expenses Aren't like they're actually growth, or like if you go in an environment like this, you can actually take it away. What we get excited is like if you've got a core business that's profitable or cash flow positive, you have multiple paths there. So, like right now in the industry, no one's writing a series B check. And you know, if you had cash flow, it's like, okay, great, can't rate a VC round. Let's go do a dividend recap. Let's go do some debt financing. Let's like, you know, do all sorts of different things, and you're not just like dependent on VC. And so, once you generate cash flow, you know you can go up and at like a city level or a unit level. You then have a lot more optionality. And so, ultimately, we just think that's like the name of the game, especially later stage.
0: When it comes to you know hardware or companies where you actually do have physical assets, but you also have revenue, quite maybe a lot more early on than you know maybe some some categories in software. When does it make sense to raise around equity an equity
1: round versus you know taking on debt? So for instance, like we just backed a company in the dentistry space, boring, unsexy, capital intensive. And I'm so excited because, you know, they have meaningful revenue north of 10 million. They have EBITDA, which like is a crazy term to use in the VC world. And so like they have like a a great thing and the brilliant, like this is the most irony of this entire like fundraising world is that people don't want to give you money when you need it, but they want to give you money when you don't need it. Because it's risk, <laughs> right? Exactly. And so, you know, this team had had realized they're onto something, and they had the option for multiple things. But they were like, "Hey, I think we can build something bigger." And so, for them, it was great because it was effectively growth equity, and so they could keep going at it. But they want to get to their goal faster, and so this round made sense for them. So ultimately, they could have kept going, right? They they were cash flow positive, etc. But this financing made sense because their core unit economics were outstanding and they wanted to go bigger.
0: How do you think about supply of capital when it comes to investing in these types of industries? So you think that it's more of like a founder's market or do you think it's more of like an investor's market currently?
1: Yeah, it switched really quickly. I, I would say, you know, what's interesting as a new VC, you know, I've had six months here. It's a really interesting asset class because I've invested in private equity. I've done some other stuff. It's very interesting to me how subjective this market is specifically VC, right? Because there's not a lot of data, right? And you're not really trading on revenue or anything like that. And so people go with the flow so much, but therein is the opportunity. If you can have an objective mindset or be disciplined, I think that's really good. So, you know, for us, I can't go create a FinTech fund. I don't know anything about FinTech. I don't care about FinTech. But like, if you're talking about dentistry or boring manufacturing, it's like, I'm your guy. And and I get excited about that. You want to talk about like building a plant? Like, I love that. And so ultimately it's matchmaking and I want to find the ones that most VCs will turn away. And this is the interesting right? Like you said capital intensive a few times and, and hardware is capital intensive, but people don't realize this, but it's come down significantly. So like to create a kiosk like 10 years ago is $20,000. It now costs $2,000 and that's literally the same as like, what, three days for a software engineer today?
0: I was, I was thinking about that too.
1: Is it cap- like, and so you've got to rethink, like, again, in this subjective world, like, everyone labels it as capital intensive, but like, it's actually not.
0: Well, it's also interesting, too, because I think that we talk about, you know, marginal costs, right? And about how, you know, software doesn't have any marginal cost. But at the same time, if you need to hire, you know, a lot more, you know, software engineers, right? Then, yes. Yeah, Maybe not, you know, part of your, you know, marginal cost side, but at the same time, that is very expensive to, um, hires to make. Right. I mean, those salaries are, you know, very large. I still think kind of maybe overlooked because it's like, oh, software business is great. You know, asset light, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, okay, but actually people working on the software, it's actually very expensive to actually keep those people on board.
1: And like further that, right? Like the software is brilliant, but it, that was like step one on the offline to online transition think about what's going on in the world right now with like raw material crisis, supply chain disarray, labor shortages, like where you are, you guys are out of water. What is software going to do on water? Like it's not going to create water, right? Like we've got to go further. And so like, if you think about what's going on in the world right now, we've got to push beyond software and that's where like, you know, IOT hardware, like AI, it's all got to come in place. Um, And I think that's really is the next epic of innovation. Well,
0: that's what I think it's interesting too, because you know, I would say investing in kind of climate tech is back in vogue. And it's interesting too, because hearing it from investors that are, you know, very software oriented, I want to say technology oriented, but really software oriented, right? Where it's like, well, if you want to create in some ways, meaningful change on the climate side, you need to build things. You need to build physical things. It can't just be, you know, software. So, and those economics, you might not, you know, know or, or like those types of economic type businesses.
1: And I think this is where it's interesting. I think if I, and and look, there's like 10 or 15 funds, right? That are doing this well. But I think this reminds me a lot of what fintech felt like a decade ago. Like, do you remember? I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but like no one wanted to touch fintech a decade ago. Too legislative, too bureaucratic, the brands of Goldman and Morgan Stanley, like you could never touch that. And now it's all been unbundled. And I think a lot of that with these industries right now, where it's like, no one wants to touch them. But in a decade from now, I think this will be some of the biggest winners. It's amazing. It's amazing.
0: How did you also approach, you know, raising 81 Collective? And how do you also choose, you know, the partners that you worked with? What's kind of the, the founding story behind it?
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I'll say, right, this is the hardest fundraising market. You know, I think most people would say in like, the last two quarters have been the hardest in the last like decade. And we're going to end up being oversubscribed. And it's nuts. And not even on our like lower limit on our hard cap. And, and obviously, we're not going above that. But there's there's two things that bring it together. One, we are countercyclical, And so if you think about what's going on in the world, we talked about this, right? Like oil prices are crazy right now. Supply chains are just like, why are we getting a tomato in California, shipping it to Canada, bringing it down to Texas and then to my Whole Foods in Chicago? Like it doesn't make sense. And so this is cracking the infrastructure in which we have a specific advantage in. So I think this time could not have been better. The other thing though, right, in terms of like my partners and everything, I'm realizing like my story actually of not being able to raise here in in, in a hard industry, especially in the Midwest is actually, it's not a unique one. Like there's actually 30, 40, 50 others who could never raise here, ended up going to the coast and then got funded. You know, if I didn't have 120 grand, I would have gone to the coast and gotten funded, but I had that. And so ultimately we just think there's a big hole here where you've got an incredible supply of talent. You know, you've got the most amount of college grads of any city are in Chicago. And there's there's a lot more capital to provide here. And so ultimately that the bond of us all being undersubscribed early, but then oversubscribed later is what bonds us all.
0: That's really cool. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally?
1: I don't know. You probably, do you get The Alchemist a lot? A few times. Yeah. 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 You like that one? I do like that one. I do think the, like, it's amazing just how much just like putting your, your effort and will onto the world just ends up creating a positive circle. I really like man's search for meaning. Uh, that's another one where it just like puts everything in perspective and, you know, just the entire story of him writing it in 10 days after the Holocaust it's just it's so amazingly insightful on in humans and the human condition. So that that is probably my favorite personal book. Professionally, this one's interesting. I no one really knows about this book. It's from like 2012, maybe. It's called Heart Smarts, Guts and Luck (HSGL). And I never, it never got like widespread press, but it was written by two McKinsey people who had pretty much broken down all entrepreneurs, and pretty much they figured out that every entrepreneur has these four things, heart, smart, guts, and luck. And what they, they figured out is you need a little bit of everything, but ultimately you need to over-index on one of those four, right? So like, you know, I think Meg Whitman is what they use, but like she's one of the smartest people on earth. You know, Richard Branson just takes wild bets. He's got more guts than anyone else. And it was really interesting framework. And that's actually informed us how we look at entrepreneurs now, because ultimately for these harder industries, like we solve for grit and guts and like we want people that like on day thousand are okay missing college football on a Saturday and like driving a van. <laughs> and, and that's the stuff we look for. And so ultimately that book professionally has really informed us and gave me a real good insight into like what are the ingredients and components of an incredible entrepreneur.
0: Love that. We have not had that book come up yet at
1: all. Love it. So,
0: and there's been like 240 episodes and that hasn't come up at all. So really excited to add that one to our book list and agree with you on the other two for sure. Vijan, this was incredible. Thank you so much
1: for your time. Of course. Thank you for having me. And thank you for allowing us to share our story.
0: And there you have it. It was such a fun conversation with Vijan. I hope you all enjoyed it. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at It's VGEN. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at MikeGelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.